The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Whatever the traditions are or aren't, no matter how you celebrate, of course the important and significant thing is that what we celebrate is Christ's birth. What we celebrate is God coming to us. And uh, even this morning as we sang uh, some of the Christmas hymns, uh, having studied through some of this the last couple of weeks, just to hear the theology that's in those words, powerful stuff. And this morning I want to take uh, and finish what we started last week in Philippians chapter 2, and also hopefully weave in a little bit of the Christmas story itself, the nativity story. Um, but I hope that as we do this, I hope you see in Philippians chapter 2, really explains um, to some extent what it meant for God to become man. And I tried to explain the first step in, the, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 11, particularly 6 through 8, there's two main verbs that everything gets built on. And the first verb or the first word is that Jesus emptied himself. And it really pictures the, the part of God becoming man where God, who is eternal God in heaven uh, throughout all eternity, uh, infinite God, somehow came to earth and became finite man. And if you were here last Sunday, I tried to explain that very, I think I did a very poor job because it's honestly a very difficult thing to explain and grasp. How, how can an infinite God take on human flesh and become finite? Uh, but let me just review a couple significant truths about it. First of all, uh, Paul asserts in Philippians 2.6 that Jesus was in every way in the form of God. He was fully God, equal with God in every way. And that God existed throughout eternity as a triune being, one in essence, one in nature, but in three distinct persons. And that, that Jesus as the second person of the Godhead was robed in all the majesty, glory, and splendor of, of God, of what it meant to be God. And one of the difficulties explaining that is, how do you explain really what the majesty and glory of God is? And I tried last week, and I just failed miserably. Because how do you describe and put into words the glory and majesty and wonder of infinite God? I can't. And words fail. Uh, but the, the point is that Jesus was robed in that glory, he possessed that being. And for all eternity past, Jesus existed as God. Right? Uh, but he, it says that he made himself nothing, he emptied himself. Somehow he took off those robes of glory, and it says he took on the robes of a slave. He put on the garment of a slave. Uh, he did that without losing any of his godness, uh, but he added on, he brought on, he added to this nature, a very human uh, flesh and blood, and became a man. Um, so that's the first big step. And let me just say one, uh, one more point about that. Fully God, fully man. Uh, if you go to the Christmas story and read it with this understanding, okay, uh, listen to the words as, as Joseph hears that his betrothed Mary is with child. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, 
she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her uh, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I can't explain this, right? Uh, but somehow, and, and this is the easy part for God. Okay, the easy part for God is making life, right? He did it with Adam and Eve, but just dirt. Uh, to, to, con- to conceive a baby in, in, in Mary was a simple thing. But that God can somehow could, could conceive this human being that was fully uh, possessed, fully endued, fully breathed in the fullness of the Godhead, uh, it's just mind-boggling to me. And uh, I can't, I, I stand in awe at the wonder of that truth. And as we reflect on Christmas, one of the things that we should just be in awe of is that God could even do this. But being God, he's able to do anything, and he does. He takes on somehow human flesh. And it's really important to emphasize that um, he was fully man. Okay, we talked about him being fully God, but it's, it's important to, to state that he was born fully man. He was born, he started off just like all of us did, a little single-cell thing that somehow divided and multiplied, and I don't understand the biology of it. You can touch your biology teacher. But that's where Jesus started, and he was born as a human being. And in Philippians, Paul puts it this way. He says he was born uh, in human form or human likeness. The, The word there is the word schema, and it can be defined this way the mode or circumstance of being, as comprising everything in a person which strikes the senses, the figure, the bearing, the speech, the actions, the manner of life. In other words, Jesus became in every way human, fully man. And he did that in emptying himself. He did that by laying aside this glory and taking on uh, this human flesh. Now here's here's just uh, something to think about at Christmas time. Uh, Jesus lived his life fully human, okay? Uh, I think oftentimes we get a bit confused when we, when we think about God-man uh, f- and fully God. We kind of in our minds, I, I don't know, I do this. Maybe you don't. I do this. I kind of picture Jesus as some kind of a genie, right? Like he's a man, but he's a man with all kinds of magical powers, right? And at a whim, he can, you know, make food appear. He can... He can, like, you know, wiggle his nose or whatever it is genies do, and he's got magical power, right? Because he's fully God, fully man, and surely God could do that, right? Uh, In fact, there's stories in the Apocrypha uh, of Jesus as a boy, and one of of the famous ones is that Jesus made a a clay bird, and he breathed on it, or sneezed on it or something, (laughs) and uh, his breath caused the clay to become a living bird, and it flew away, right? And sometimes we kind of get this idea that that was Jesus, you know, he was... Yeah, he was a man, but he, was, he wasn't a man like us because he was God, right? That's not true, okay? He laid aside all of that. That doesn't mean he, he emptied himself completely that he no longer could do it. It wasn't that he was not able to do that kind of thing, but he was no longer willing to use that power. So when he became a man, he became fully a man like you and I. And one of the things we've got to know is that he lived his life as a human being fully, 
in bearing in speech and conduct and action and manner of life, right? Um, well, you know, when we think about that, we start thinking, well, well, then how did he, you know, he walked on water, he turned the water into wine, he fed the 5,000, he gave sight to the blind, he raised the dead, you know, he did all those miracles. Certainly he was a genie, right? Because he did all that stuff, right? And he just went around poofing with his magic wand, you know, Harry Potter, right? Right? No. How does Scripture say, in fact, how does Jesus affirm that he did all the miracles that he did? Did he do it as the second person of the Godhead who was uh, kind of a man but really mostly a genie? Well, notice what Scripture says. Um, Luke chapter 3, it starts off here. One day as the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Fast forward to Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Right? And he began his public ministry. How did Jesus do his public ministry? He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? He laid aside his right to power as the second person of the Trinity. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he operated in that. Paul affirms the same thing in Acts 10. He says, this is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching this message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Okay, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And how, did God do, how did Jesus do his ministry? Well, he was fully man, just like you and I. And he carried out his ministry, not by waving magic wands, not by pulling up this reserve as a second person of the Trinity, but he did it uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, just like you and I. Right? Just like you and I. So what Jesus did, the way he lived his life, is, is no different than you and I. Okay? That's, that's the point of the incarnation. Right? If we take that away from Jesus, we make him somehow less than fully human. We make him a God who showed up um, as God in a body, but not truly human. But the point of Philippians is that in every way, Jesus was a man just like us. Jesus himself affirms this. He says in John 5, uh, the Jewish leaders were, were harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. And Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, but he called God his father, thereby, thereby making himself equal with God. Uh, just an apologetic note. The Jews understood what Jesus said by that. Okay, they were not confused about Jesus' claim to deity. Right? They, they didn't agree with him. Uh, but they weren't confused about it. They understood that Jesus was claiming equality with God. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. Right? He says, I can't do anything on my own. So I, I like you, am a, am a man. I was born a man. I am living life as a human being. I can't do anything on my own. All I can do is do what I see the Father doing. All I can do is partner with God the Father 
and the ministry that he's doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Great model, by the way, for ministry. If you happen to be uh, wanting to serve God, if you happen to be mostly human, anybody here in that category? Uh, A few of us, you know, are bordering on the divinity thing, but most of us still quite human. Uh, You want to do powerful, effective ministry? You do it just like Jesus did. Okay, not because you're God, but because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit who equips and enables you to do ministry just like Jesus did, just like God did in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, well, to me, this is it's fully God, fully man. To me, it's fully astonishing, fully astonishing, remarkable that God could do this and uh, that he could somehow empty himself to the extent and the, to the degree that he would really become fully human and lay aside all his power right, and all the glory that goes with that. Right? Keeping his nature, keeping his being as God, but choosing to not use that power, to not tap into that reserve, uh, that God would just be a man. Right? Uh, that's what Christmas is about. That's what, that's what Jesus' birth, getting laid in this manger... Right, this lowly birth. So that's the first step uh, from heaven to earth. But Philippians records uh, a couple more successive steps about his downward path. Remember we talked last week that his path from heaven to earth was very much a downward path. God is very much downwardly mobile, uh, unlike us who are upwardly mobile. <clears throat> uh, once Jesus became a man, he takes those further steps downward. And notice what it says, real quick, three steps. He says, uh, so... He was found in the form as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Okay, three more quick steps. First step, uh, it says that he humbled himself. Okay, so Jesus came as a man, but that was not enough. Okay, Jesus as 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 a man, as a human being, chose to humble himself further. Uh, And here's the deal. Uh, Jesus was born as the promised Messiah. He was the son of David. He was the rightful heir to the throne of David. Okay, he was declared and prophesied as Messiah. Jesus had the right to be born as a man and to be exalted to the highest position of rule and authority in earth. Right? Um, he could have done that. And in fact, that's what the Jews wanted him to do. They wanted him to be king. Right? But Jesus does not do that. He does not exalt himself. He does not pursue power. He does not pursue position. He doesn't seek to be king. Instead, he does what? It says he humbles himself. And he humbles himself in, in obedience. Uh, he, is, he is born to a poor carpenter. Uh, he himself becomes a poor carpenter. If any of you have been a carpenter, you know how poor carpenters can be, right? <laughs> Uh, it's, 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 not a, it's not a noble trade, right? Uh, it's not the path to great wealth, especially in Jesus' day. Right? He, was, he was a chong, to put it in Thai terms, right? A chong, uh, a laborer, right? Um, and it says that he humbled himself, first of all, by becoming obedient. By becoming obedient. It's remarkable. The, the God who once ordered the stars and directed their paths, the Old Testament says, now chooses to submit and lower himself to become obedient. How many of you really like being told what to do? You know, what kid loves it when their parents say, 
Have you done your homework yet? You know, have you cleaned up your room? Right? What's, our, what's our natural reaction to that? Hmm. Don't tell me what to do, right? Uh, how many you know, wives just love their husbands telling them what to do? How many husbands love their wives telling them what to do? Honey, have you blah, blah, blah yet? I'm working on it, right? We just love to be told what to do, don't we? It's our nature. We just, we just live to be told what to do. Uh, obedience is complying to somebody else's demands and commands. Right? It's saying, I'm here, you tell me what to do. I want you to be my boss. I just don't have people knocking on my door all day saying that. Hey, Tim, you know, I'm here to do whatever you want. Please be my boss, right? Okay. And I'm certainly not that way, especially with God, right? Uh, Jesus was fully obedient. He humbled himself to a place of obedience. He was obedient to the laws of nature. Uh, he, he, like everybody else, had to comply to gravity and everything else. Uh, he was obedient to the law, and he f- perfectly fulfilled all the commands of the law. He was obedient to human authority, like his parents, religious leaders, the government rulers of the day. Uh, but mostly, he was obedient to his father. Okay? Uh, and, you know, out of all those groups, maybe you would say, well, well, I would most want to be obedient to the Father. That seems like that would be the easiest. But when you look at the case of Jesus, it was the will of the Father, of His Father, to send Jesus to the cross as the sacrifice for sin. Okay? Uh, when we obey God the Father, we don't have to do that. Right? God will never ask us to do what He asked Jesus. In fact, Jesus is unique in what He did. Uh, no human being can fulfill the Father's purpose like Jesus did because he was fully God and fully man. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So first, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, right? And ultimately obedient to the Father. Secondly, uh, the extent of that obedience was to, to, was to the point of death, right? To become the sacrifice for sin. Uh, and in that, he truly is very unique. Uh, there, there are some who God has called to be obedient to the point of death. And in fact, who knows in this room, there may be somebody here who, who is called to that. Right? Uh, certainly in history, there have been those who have died for their faith, who have stood up and professed Jesus, and it's cost them their life. Uh, that's obedient to the point of death. But Jesus' obedience to the point of death even went beyond that. Because for him to experience death was not to experience death as we experience it. For us to experience death means we stop breathing, our flesh, you know, somebody turns out the lights and nobody's home, right? And they put the body in the ground, but our spirit, if we are in Christ, goes to be with God. And we never actually experience death. Okay, our body, you know, the batteries die. But the rest of us lives eternally. If we are in Christ, we have been given new life in Him, and we now possess life eternal. And so for us, death is not an ending. It's just a passage from this life to a fuller life. That wasn't true for Jesus. When it says Jesus was obedient to the point of death, it means ultimate death. He died a a death you and I will never experience if we put our faith in Him. 
because he took upon himself the full consequences of all that death was. Right? He paid the full penalty. He allowed, and in his death, experienced the total wrath of God as the punishment for all our sins. He who knew, he who knew no sin became sin. And he took upon himself the sins of the whole world. It's so vitally important that we understand the Incarnation. There is no person as a man by himself that could do that. Right? Uh, at the same token, God, without a human flesh and body, could not do that. Because God's not capable of death. But in the Incarnation, Jesus, in a fully human body, fully man, was able to endure, because he's also God, the full punishment of sin and experienced the, the incredible depths of what death was. Right? He was obedient to the point of that kind of death. Right? As it says, he was obedient as a sacrifice, the obedient of sacrifice for our sins. And that sacrifice wasn't a noble sacrifice. There's lots of kinds of sacrifices, right? And either way, you know, if you're a sacrifice, it means you die. Um, but there's noble, heroic deaths, and there's not-so-noble deaths. Well, it says Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Right? Well, that means this. That means that Jesus' death was not noble. Uh, the cross was, was designed by the Romans to shame and humiliate its worst enemies. Uh, this is how it worked. When, when, when the Romans would go into a foreign country and invade and attack, and they wanted to demonstrate to everybody around that if you, if you mess with Rome, this is what happens, right? So in a country they would invade, for example, Israel, uh, and there was a revolt and a rebellion. Somebody tried to overthrow the government. When they caught that person, they devised crucifixion as a way to demonstrate this is what happens when you mess with Rome. And it was devised as the most humiliating, degrading, and shameful death possible. It, it was done on the most visible public places they could find. They stripped the people naked. They beat them till they were uh, beyond recognition. And they hung them there to, die for, to hang for days. Right? Where everybody passing by would see, this is what happens if you mess with Rome. Right? It was intended to be as shameful as possible. Uh, Jesus did not die a noble death. Right? He humbled himself. He lowered himself. He took step after step downward to purchase our salvation. Why was it necessary that Jesus die such a shameful death? Why couldn't he have had kind of a quiet, nice, you know, noble death? Why couldn't he have taken out his sword and like fought in the Romans and, you know, died saving Israel? So much more glorious. Well, simply this. Uh, Jesus needed to experience the full punishment and consequence of death. He also needed to bear the weight of the shame and disgrace of sin. Okay. Our sin is filled with incredible shame and disgrace. Okay. Uh, you know, just think, about, just think about the greatest moral, most public sin you could fall into, right? get in a marital affair, embezzle, you know, tons of money from the church or from your mission, you know. And imagine, you know, what it would be like for you to, to confess this to your constituents, your parents, your children, right? Uh, there's grace and there's forgiveness for any sin, 
But there's also a lot of shame that goes with that, right? One of the things that keeps me out of sin more than anything is just that thought. <laughs> that, you know, if I had to tell my mom I did this, it would be, it'd be just degrading, right? If I had to stand before you, I would be degrading. There's something horribly shameful about sin. And Jesus bore the, the weight of sin and all its shame as he died on the cross. So the, obedi- the sacrifice of humiliation, not only humbling himself, but really coming to a place of horrible humiliation. Um, in, in Jesus, in the, in the birth account in Matthew, it says this, as, as Joseph considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At the very day of his birth announcement, it was clear that his purpose would be as the atoning sacrifice for all our sin. Well, that is uh, supremely what Jesus' birth is about, right? The incarnation. God becoming man so that he could become a sacrifice for our sins to purchase our salvation and redemption. Amazing. Uh, but thankfully, the, the, the hymn in Philippians doesn't end on quite such a low point, right? And the story doesn't end there. It ends here where, where the hymn goes on. It says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Um, Jesus, uh, in his ministry on earth, said this. He said, The greatest among you must be a servant. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, here's a principle to always remember. Jesus will never ask or demand of you you anything he is not himself doing. Uh, Jesus commands us, he tells us to be humbling ourselves. But God's done this, right? To a degree we never can. God has humbled himself. And as Jesus humbled himself, God the Father exalted him. And it says that he, was, he raised him, he exalted him to the place of supreme honor. Uh, and, and beyond that, he gave him a name. Uh, there's a lot of debate about what the name is. Most likely the name is Lord. Given the name Jesus Lord. Uh, that's probably affirmed in verse 11 where it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, Jesus is elevated to the place of supreme sovereign authority where he is Lord over everything and everyone. He is exalted above every being in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So that Jesus is now supreme over everything. Uh, But not only is he exalted above every being, it says that at the name of Jesus or in honor of the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
the truth is that because of what Jesus has done, he will also be exalted by every being. He will be acknowledged by every being. Every knee will bow before him. And I love that in these images of bowing the knee and proclaiming with the mouth Jesus as Lord, it is, it is a picture of what Jesus himself did. It is humbling ourselves before him <clears throat> and being obedient. The truth is everybody will be there someday. Standing before Jesus, humbling themselves, bowing before him, bending their knee and acknowledging his lordship. <clears throat> Does that mean that everybody is going to do this joyfully? No. <laughs> okay, there's two, there's, there's choices. Uh, the choice is not if you will or will not bow before Jesus. Everybody will bow before Jesus someday. Right? The choice, though, is how you bow. You can, uh, you can bow before Jesus and acknowledge him as your king, as the Lord you love, and as one you adore and worship, that you freely and joyfully worship. Or you can bow before him as one conquered and dominated by a sovereign king for whom you are now a prisoner and a subject against your will. Right? Uh, everyone will bow. And every tongue will declare Jesus is supreme. Right? Uh, of course, the church and what Christmas is about and, and hopefully our continual celebration is to do just that. To joyfully declare Jesus, you are supreme over everything. And for what you have done to purchase our redemption, we give you praise and glory. We exalt you above everything. Right? We worship you. We adore you. Uh, it's interesting, even in the birth accounts, um, as Jesus was lowering himself, God was exalting him. Right? It's like God could not wait. You know, he just couldn't wait. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up the shepherds. Hey, guys, I got a cool message for you. Jesus is born. And all the host of heaven, you know, shows up. Myriads of angels. And they declare glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth on those whom God favor rests. God is glorifying Jesus even in his birth. And if he glorified him in his birth, he glorified him in the resurrection, how much more will he glorify him when he comes again? Right? Jesus is coming again. And uh, to, to look at, back at Christmas only as the coming of Christ the first time and not see him in his coming again is to kind of miss the point. Uh, we, we will honor him. And the, the, the hymn in Philippians ends this way. This is all to the glory of God the Father. All to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified in the unfolding of his salvation plan. And you and I as his church, as his followers, as his fellow believers, you know, someday we're going to get to do Christmas all year long, right? An ongoing, unending celebration of, of great joy at this God who became man, who gave himself for us because he loved us so much. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, bow before you willingly. Lord, we bend our knee. We humble ourselves before you and acknowledge you as sovereign Lord over our life, as our Redeemer and Savior and King. 
we acknowledge that you have right to rule over us, that you are our sovereign Lord, and we pray that you would be exalted supremely over all things. And Lord, we acknowledge you and confess with our mouth that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord of all. And Lord, we look forward to the day when the complete and total fulfillment of all your purpose and plan through Christ is ultimately accomplished and fulfilled. And as we celebrate Christmas, Lord, we celebrate the promise of all of that. And we just stand in awe at this God who would step out of heaven and take on the clothes of humanity so that you could be God with us. Lord, we just stand in awe of you and give you praise in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.